agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, political and policy analyst, Kristen Matheny. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I am doing okay. How about you, Kristen? I'm good. We're, uh, we're dealing with some bad weather here in South Florida, but other than that, I mean, that's the summer story, right? Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, we're doing okay. Definitely. Well, it, it, it's been a while and I am, I, I am really happy to be doing the show with you again. And, but before we get to our show, we want to thank a few people, uh, some, our newest Patreon supporters, Brent and Maggie, and also a huge thanks to Don, who's a longtime listener and supporter who recently in addition to his regular monthly support of the show, gave us a pretty significant contribution through Venmo. And he wrote in after he did that, and he said it was in honor and recognition of the absolute fine job that you and the rest of the team do on the Politics Guys podcast, and in recognition of the fact that I appreciate you guys even more today than when I first signed up as a supporter, and in recognition of my opinion that this country needs you and the podcast now more than ever, uh, which I thought was really nice. And then he included this P.S. Tell Jay I said, and even you, Jay. <laughs> and, and then in a later email, he added, I got to give Jay a shout out. The last bonus show was some of his best stuff. And even though I disagree a lot with him and find myself telling him to stop talking sometimes, he is an effective counterbalance to have in my life even when I want him to stop talking. Good job, Jay. I respect you and 20% agree with you, and I'm glad you're on the show. So it's a, it's not all hating on Jay or, or conservatives or anything like that, even though we know, and you know, Christian, that our audience is definitely leans more to the left. You and Jay, yeah. we, you know, uh, you and Jay kind of are our right flank, really, with Trey being like a like a not quite a former Republican, but, you know, kind of searching for that. So we really appreciate that. Um, and of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get that second full length episode every week, which now I should point out, we are releasing at the same time as our regular available to everyone episode. Uh, we got a lot of feedback on that when we started it last week and it was all pretty much all positive. So we're going to continue to do that. And as always, if you would like to get that second episode, but you can't afford to support the show financially. Totally not a problem. Send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. Now, today we are going to be talking about a bunch of stuff, and I'm sure some of it will, a lot of it will spill over into that second show, like politics and policy surrounding COVID, of course, unfortunately, uh, particularly in Florida, where Kristen has a specific interest. Uh, the Senate's adoption of that $3.5 trillion budget blueprint, the 2020 census data release, the IPCC climate report, the Taliban just tearing through Afghanistan and the U.S. response or lack thereof to their uh, startling success, the resignation of New York Governor Andrew Andrew Cuomo, Amazon, and biometric scanning is scary stuff. And uh, as usual, whatever we don't get to on the regular show, like I said, we'll we'll hit on that bonus show, which uh, which we'll release at the same time. But before we get to any of that stuff, we're just going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to start things off. Okay, Kristen. So I thought we'd we'd start off in well, your sort of backyard, as it were, 
with the with the situation with uh, Florida and, and Governor DeSantis, although I think it's more broadly applicable to a number of, of southern states. But why don't you kick us off? Sure. Yeah. So um, just to kind of give a recap, um, earlier this year, Governor Ron DeSantis here in Florida banned um, proof of vaccination, otherwise known as vaccine passports, um, in private for private businesses. So, you know, public opinion has really been split on this decision. There's been a lot of back and forth, especially recently during the past week. Um, other states have enforced similar bans. Uh, some are more restrictive, some less restrictive. Um, yeah, just it's kind of all over the map, all over the country. Um, so over the past week, um, kind of in, in conjunction with that, over the past week with kids returning to school, um, there's been this really big focus, um, kind of an expansion of that uh, states and, and governors implementing or not implementing mask mandates and school districts defying those executive orders. So obviously, you know, that that comes into play here in Florida. Um, there has been an executive order um, to basically not enforce mask mandates uh, in certain school districts or in all school districts here in Florida. And you know, just to be clear, this executive order does not prohibit mandates outright. I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation there out. Um, but the decision-making pow power is basically being given to parents and guardians, um, which essentially allows for opt-outs. So, of course, on everyone's minds, um, kind of, I guess, the moral of this story is the political scope of all of this. So, you know, there's a lot of talk, Republican governors like Ron DeSantis and, of course, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, um, you know, they're the subject of a lot of conversations regarding like possible presidential runs, senatorial runs. Um, and these issues have, you know, because of that, these issues have become really polarizing. Again, we're always talking about COVID and politics intertwined, and um, this has made people even more polarized. So, yeah, kind of a lot, kind of a lot of bullet points uh, to talk about here. But you know, basically, what we're talking about is everything going on with COVID this week. Uh, you know, leading up to this week, obviously, back to school uh, things going on here in Florida, uh, concerns about the Delta variant, mask mandates, and of course, I'm in the epicenter of all of it here in Broward County, Florida. If you've been following the news, there's there's a lot of uh, conversation about Broward County in particular. So before I talk, I, I definitely wanted to get your opinion on this, Mike. So what do you think? Well, I guess the place where I want to start or where I generally start is with the actual data. And the data to me is, is pretty concerning. I just pulled up right now the, the latest data on the uh, hospitalized per 100,000 rate. And the U.S. average is 22. Number one in the country in states is Florida at 69, uh, which is, you know, this is pretty concerning because if you're sick enough to be hospitalized with COVID, obviously it's more than just cases. But uh, the next the next four in the top five, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Arkansas. I mean, there are there are some connections there, right? They're all deep. They're all red states with Republican governors. And so, you know, that's one thing to point out that this you know, is, a, is a big deal in certain states, particularly Florida. And, and also, I think it's important to point out that pediatric COVID cases are significantly on the rise in Florida, though we don't have great data on this because, and I don't know why, mm -hmm. But as of June 24th, the Florida Department of Health stopped reporting child COVID hospitalizations. I don't know why. I maybe have suspicions, but I won't I won't go there because I don't know why. But 
to give you a snap, to give people a snapshot at one, just one hospital, Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in your county, Broward County, Mm -hmm. um, there were just over 20 kids with COVID treated in that hospital in June. 240, around 240 in July, and in just the first 10 days of August, they've treated 160 kids with COVID, which if you extrapolate it to the end of the month, would be 480 for the month, a doubling from July. And that's pediatric COVID, which I think is particularly of concern with kids going back to school very shortly, and the fact that, you know, the kids 12 and under can't get uh, the uh, the COVID shot that's not authorized the vaccine, and we're seeing these cases uh, serious enough to be hospitalized or go to the hospital on the rise. And so, to me, this, this idea that you know this is just not a big deal, and well, kids can't get it or kids can't get really sick from it. The data I think suggests otherwise. And so, I, I guess I wanted to get your take on the seriousness of all this. What what you take away from, especially like Florida? versus the rest of the country on this, given that that is, you know, right where you're at? Well, I think I think there are a lot of topics here uh, that we can cover. Um, so when it comes to the concerns of, of parents going back to school, um, you know, Broward County has famously, or I should say the Broward County School District has famously, uh, I guess, rejected uh, Ron DeSantis's um, executive order, basically um, prohibiting uh, the, these mask mandates. And of course, it's not it's not total prohibition because there are several counties in Florida that have made adjustments to this. Uh, they've allowed for opt-outs. Uh, Broward County is not allowing for opt-outs. About a week ago, um, the county actually voted to uh, allow for these opt-outs and to go along with this executive order. And then this week, um, and, and I, I believe these, I, you know, of course I'm here in Florida, but I assume this made national headlines. Broward County uh, chose to basically backtrack um, in light of, of all of this information. So I think um, one of the issues that has come up um, is Florida is sort of the epicenter of the Delta variant, but also Florida has been the epicenter of a lot of shady reporting of that COVID data. So um, two weeks ago, the CDC actually, or I should say a week ago, the CDC actually had to backtrack um, with some of their Florida numbers. They had reported, I think, a little over 28,000 people, uh, new cases had developed in the state of Florida, and they basically backtracked it and said that it was actually closer to 15,000. It was a little over 15,000 people. So I think part of the conservative backlash here in the state of Florida is that we can't seem to get the statistics right. And likewise, we can't seem to we can't seem to get a good number when it comes to reporting pediatric data too. So I do, I am aware that, you know, the Delta variant is something that is very real. It's something that's on the forefront of people's minds, but I think there's a lot of mistrust here in Florida just because of everything that's happened, especially over the last couple of weeks, there've been quite a few developments there. And, you know, I think a lot of parents are starting to, you know, question the political motivations, you know, more progressive parents are questioning the political motivations of Ron DeSantis. You know, obviously he's trying to uh, stake his claim on the Republican Party. I think, you know, I personally think he's vying for that, for, you know, making a presidential run. I think he's, you know, trying to put his name in, in the minds of 
of Republican voters. Um, it seems to be working in a lot of cases. He's very popular amongst Republicans, very, very popular. He's actually the front runner uh, to run on the Republican ticket in 2024. So I do think that there are, you know, ulterior motives there, obviously. But on the other hand, I think that, you know, more conservative parents, myself included, are questioning this data um, just because it seems to change so rapidly. The CDC has, you know, recently backtracked some of that data. So I think there there are obvious concerns, but there there's a lot of hesitation to kind of mandate one way or the other. And obviously there are a lot of concerns with you know, masks causing problems um, in terms of like psychological damage to children. Um, it's kind of the this unspoken problem. Uh, and it's not just in Florida, it's around the world. Other, you know, uh, governments around the world have expressed concerns about, you know, the trauma of kids wearing masks, um, you know, delays in terms of like phonetic, you know, increasing phonetic skills, especially amongst younger kids. Um, you know, there, there, there just there are a ton of concerns. It's almost like t- it's almost like too much to talk about, but it, you know, there are just so many concerns about about wearing masks going one way or the other. And I think here in Florida, I think you know, the eyes of the nation are upon us. And, you know, certainly here in Broward County, we're feeling the pressure. So I don't know, kind of a summary, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, on the data thing, uh, it seems to me, well, let's just pull, you can just pull Florida's state data, which I'm looking at right now. And when I look at the weekly positivity, when I look at the weekly deaths, I mean, it tells you, it tells the same story. And so it seems to me that people who say, well, you know, we don't really, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is we know, number one, that 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 data from, say, you know, Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, that those are those are real kids and that these are real increases. And I think the argument that, well, you know, we're not sure about the data. So let's just I mean, that these are these are people's lives who are being impacted. And in many cases, lives are being lost. And, and I feel like it's very convenient for some people who are just anti-mask or anti-vaccine to say, well, you know, the data is a little, well, yeah, okay, we can argue around the edges of that maybe. But what we do know is that Florida is absolutely at the national epicenter and and arguing one or two percent, you know, either way, it seems to me that that's a, that's a side sort of argument that gives people a convenient excuse for saying, well, you know, you can't trust the government. Is it 18 percent? Is it 17 percent? Whatever. I mean, do you see what I'm saying there? I do, but we're not talking about a difference of one or two percent. We're talking about a difference of of 28,000 versus 15,000. That's a huge discrepancy. That's almost half of the number of, of COVID new cases, uh, basically you know, thrown out. Um, and and I think, you know, if it was a difference, if we've talked about this before, if it was a discrepancy of one or two percent, you know, I think that I think that's worth consideration. But, you know, when it, I, I guess to, to another point you made when it comes to masks, um, I'm not arguing for masks or against masks. I actually don't see it as a, as a political issue. I see it as very much a personal issue. But there have been a lot of studies that have shown the Wall Street Journal just reported earlier this week that um, I believe it was a major, I want to say it was a major study coming out of the Mayo Clinic. It, it may have been somebody similar. I'll, I'll, I can, you know, provide that, you know, and we can post it, I guess, you know, with the notes for the show. But um, basically, Masks are the fourth most effective way to reduce the transmission of this virus. They're the fourth most effective way. Far more effective is, for example, social distancing. I believe that was number two. So 
I guess what concerns me is like here in Broward County, I'm obviously concerned about COVID. It's something that's on the back of my mind. But here in Broward County, when it comes to schools, my kids' school announced that they will not be abiding by social distancing. They will be abiding by the mask mandate, though. It seems to me that in this case, uh, they're just I feel like there's not enough consideration for some of the data that's coming out regarding masks and the wearing of masks, whether you're pro mask, whether you're anti mask. Um, you know, I, I think regardless, there are other methods of reducing transmission of covid that are far more effective, such as social distancing. And I think that's worth consideration when it comes to what's going on uh, in schools in well, particular. Yeah. And I, I certainly agree. And it just makes sort of common sense that social distancing would be more of more effective. Right. But I think the problem and, you know, from an educator standpoint is that there simply aren't the facilities to bring everyone back in the class. Because anyone who's been in a classroom know that people are kind of pushed together pretty tightly and there are just there are just classroom size constraints. And so you can't actually have the in-person sort of experience that uh, I think rightly so many people last year said it was really, uh, there were some serious consequences to not having that. And so to me, it's a question of, well, what can you do when you do the best thing you can do to kind of balance the, the risk? And social distancing is a lot more, is a lot more difficult to do with in-person education. I mean, you can do a little bit of it. I mean, I know certainly when my classes start in two weeks, I'm going to try to get the get the students to sit as far apart as possible. But we're you know we're limited by classroom size. Whereas with masks, everyone can have access to a mask and put a mask on, and it may be the fourth most effective thing, but it's certainly more effective than nothing at all. And you know, and, and the other point I wanted to make is on the discrepancy in the case count. I you know to me since the beginning, the new case data is perhaps the least uh, indicative to me, the least, imp I don't want to say least important because it sounds like I'm minimizing it, but to me, I, there are a lot of problems with looking at the severity of COVID in area just by people who happen to test positive for a lot of reasons. But that's why I always look to hospitalizations because that's much, that's a much firmer sort of, a more solid sort of thing. If you know you are sick enough to go to the hospital, deaths, of course, would be another thing. And so I don't even look really at new case data for those reasons. But I look at hospitalization rates and that there, I think there's a lot, there's not really that controversy there because it's a lot easier to kind of count and understand that sort of thing. And when you look at that, again, that's why I mentioned that for Florida, Florida per capita by far exceeds any other state in the country. And I think it's sort of hard for people to not look at that and not look at those top five Southern Republican dominated states in hospitalizations per capita and not say, isn't there, isn't it reasonable to posit some correlation between what people are hearing from political leaders and the actions that political leaders like DeSantis and Abbott and some others are taking and that hospitalization right. And shouldn't that be a reasonable uh, uh, thing for concern? I think it is a reasonable thing for concern. I, I mean, I'm not trying to argue that it's not. I think, you know, even for the most, you know, adamantly opposed anti-maskers. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier this week and she made a comment that everybody knows someone, 
you know, at this point, everybody knows someone who has been impacted in some way, either secondhand or firsthand by COVID, somebody who's been hospitalized, or maybe even somebody who has, you know, been seriously ill or died. From COVID, and and I'm no exception. Um, I do know people who have been, you know, heavily, heavily. I, th- I think all of us have felt the impact in some way, whether that was economic, whether that was just in terms of, you know, living our lives, whether we feel like our personal freedoms were, you know, in, you know, I guess trampled upon, or you know, whether we've been infected by COVID ourselves. I think all of us have have felt that. So I think it's I think it's it's accurate to say that. Yeah, I, I look at the data too. The numbers are going up. Um, I think there are lots of reasons why those numbers are going up. I'm not going to say that it's going to stop um, necessarily, or you know, change in any way. If we wear masks, if we don't wear masks, I, I agree with you that masks reduce the transmission. I don't think they're the most effective way. In fact, I don't think they are. You know, I mean, obviously, there's fourth most effective way according to this one study. But you know, I, I've I've questioned the efficacy of, of masks in the past, but, you know, I wear a mask. Um, I know that it makes people feel better when I wear a mask. Um, I know that it reduces the transmission of not just the COVID virus, but other viruses, um, you know, if I wear a mask. So, yeah, I wear a mask. And yes, numbers are going up. Um, that being said, I think that there are a lot of other issues in play here in Florida with Governor DeSantis. Like I said, he's obviously kind of positioning himself for this presidential run. He's trying to be at the forefront of the minds of Republicans. Um, I think there are issues of personal freedoms that are worth talking about. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of us who make those arguments tend to get poo-pooed uh, a little a little too often. Um, but I think there are some some genuine concerns about how long will this last? You know, if we if we, you know, take these measures, if we, you know, allow government to, um, you know, take that choice away from parents, what other choices will be taken away from parents? I know you probably don't like the slippery slope argument, but I'm, I'm, I'm not presenting it as my argument. I'm presenting it as something that is legitimately in the minds of a lot of conservatives, particularly here in Florida. It's it, This is what I'm hearing. It's not my favorite argument either, but it's what I'm hearing. And I think these are legitimate concerns. You know, you see data, you see a lot of backtracking of that data. Um, you see a rise in the hospitalizations. I remember when this happened, it, you know, it was a roller coaster last year. I remember things started to get better in the fall and then they shot back up again. Um, in January, you know, we had the, the highest numbers here in Florida and I think across the nation um, than that we had had all year long for the like the full calendar year prior. So, you know, I anticipate that will happen again, especially as, you know, things start to relax, things start to return to normal in some parts of the country and here in Florida, businesses are opening. I think you will see a spike in COVID. I think you'll see a spike in a lot of things. I know a lot of people have been hospitalized. I know two people who have been hospitalized here in Florida with RSV, um, you know, which is being transmitted heavily right now because we're starting to loosen our restrictions and we're starting to not wear masks. I guess I guess ultimately a lot of people wonder like like where does this stop when we when we stop wearing masks viral you know viral infection will inevitably go up so you know what do we need to do to stop that from happening and can we even stop it from happening and i think what what a lot of people especially on the left say is well yeah what we do is we we get it we get as many people vaccinated as possible and you know for, for me if i were if i were the governor of of any particular state or any random state, I suppose, once the uh, once the FDA approved, fully approved one of the vaccines, which looks like it's going to happen with the Pfizer vaccine starting probably sometime in early September, I, I would be completely comfortable with a with a vaccine 
mandate along the lines of where a lot of, you know, a lot of school districts, a lot of states, uh, most of them, I, I would say just about all of them, have requirements that you need to be vaccinated for other things that are fully approved by the FDA, the vaccines, before you can send your kid to school for public health reasons. And so to me, that seems like that seems like the most because that's the most going to be the most effective thing, certainly. And uh, obviously, kids under 12, it's not going to be approved yet. But that to me seems like the reason, of course. But but what Governor DeSantis seems to be doing, I, I, well, things like, for instance, you know, threatening to uh, to uh, take the salaries away, right, to, to not pay school superintendents and school board members and impose mask mandates or even more, you know, for, for someone who's a free market uh, conservative saying that that private businesses in Florida are not free to impose mandates or, or not or vaccine proof of vaccine if they want. It's like, wow, what a what an incredible government int- intrusion into into private, you know, private business, private enterprise, which seems to fly in the face of, of traditional conservative economic principles. And so it seems to me that Ron DeSantis, like a lot of like a lot of sort of Republican populists, isn't really much of a conservative. He's just he's just somebody who's just grasping on to whatever sort of doctrine might might get him into the White House and damn the consequences. You know, this was actually a concern of mine when all of this, uh, you know, this executive order first started making headlines. I believe it was like back in early May. Um, Ron, you know, Governor DeSantis, you know, started talking about, um, you know, banning the vaccine passport. Um, and I and I actually did think I read an article, I believe, in The Economist um, back then, and it was about the ramifications for private businesses. You know, is this going to impact private business? It made the same argument you did, um, asking a lot of questions. Is this going to cause problems um, in terms of businesses, you know, being able to exercise their right to, like, quote unquote, keep their patrons safe? Um, you know, is this going to impact um, businesses requiring their employees, for example, to get vaccinated? Um, so, you know, I think that argument is is valid, uh, very, very valid, actually. But I think that from the conservative perspective, there's an argument to be made about personal personal freedom. And it's it's funny because I say it and I can almost like see, you know, the more progressive listeners rolling their eyes. Oh, you've heard enough about personal freedom. I'm saying this again because it's a huge concern in the minds of a lot of conservatives. If we start mandating vaccine passports, for example, domestic travel. So to, in order to get on an airplane, you have to have a vaccine. I think that, you know, flies in the face of, for example, um, this this progressive claim that the vaccines are effective. You know, we talked we were talking six months ago about the fact that this vaccine was being billed as a prophylactic. It was billed as something that was preventative to prevent COVID. And I feel like the goalposts have moved over the last few months. It's not a pro- prophylactic. You know, the CDC has come out and said it actually just, in, you know, decreases um, some of the symptoms or, you know, it makes you more likely to be able to resist the virus, but it, it's not, it's, you know, it doesn't make you completely able to resist the virus. And, you know, the, again, like the, the data is changing. We're going to talk later on about like the efficacy of the Moderna vaccine versus the Pfizer vaccine. And I think there are a lot of people who have legitimate concerns about this and about personal freedom. I mean, you know, I guess I have kind of a, a mixed opinion about it. Um, 
you know, the vaccine is not something, vaccine passports are not something I'm in favor of for reasons, you know, that pertain to personal freedom and also just the idea that something so authoritarian um, could be implemented, you know, but that's not to say that I don't think that it could be a requirement for kids going to school and for travel in the future. Um, you know, right now the vaccine is in its experimental stages. There have been no long-term term trials. I've said to just about everyone I know, I'd be willing to take the vaccine once I see the results, once there is some data. I think a lot of conservatives feel the same way I do, that it's really a personal, deeply, deeply personal decision and not so much a political one. Um, but, you know, that being said, I, you know, Florida is the epicenter and I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing what's going on here. I feel like, you know, there is a lot of talk about about protecting personal freedoms, it's going on here. I'm also concerned about access to the vaccines, especially amongst minority populations. I mean, you probably know this, and a lot of our listeners probably know this, but but the populations of the United States that that haven't received the vaccine by the largest percentages tend to be minority populations. There's also a lot of vaccine skepticism in some communities. So there's also the issue of like disproportionate vaccination and, you know, kind of dealing with that. Will it be, um, you know, will, will vaccine man, uh, passports be essentially discriminating against certain groups of people because of these ideas and, you know, because of their reluctance to get the vaccine. So, I mean, there are just there are so many issues when it comes to the vaccine passport. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that's that's not something that seems to be on the horizon. But wouldn't you say there's a distinction between government potentially doing something like that? And in the case of Florida, the government, again, saying to private businesses, we are going to tell you how you can and cannot screen people for, for, for what you can do or not. I mean, the, you talked about freedom. Isn't that a isn't that a violation of freedom? Shouldn't I mean, based on core sort of economic freedom, business freedom principles, shouldn't Norwegian cruise lines or what have you be able to decide what their health policies are and what right does government have if you're especially if you're a conservative to dictate to them what uh, what sort of health conditions they can put on? I mean, isn't that a isn't that a personal isn't that a freedom issue? I totally think it's a freedom issue. That, I mean, that, I started off by saying I, that was my biggest concern when this happened back in May. Um, that one of my one of my biggest concerns was the issue of of free market policy and the fact that you know all of a sudden you had private businesses like Norwegian Cruise Line, like a lot of cruise lines. I mean, that was kind of the first conversation we had when we talked about um, you know private businesses not being able to mandate these vaccine passports. Um, you know, obviously that's a concern. My other concern, though, is whether or not this will trickle over into employers mandating employee vaccinations, um, which, you know, I think presents a whole other host of issues. So I think, I, again, like I know the slippery slope argument isn't isn't a popular one, but I know that that's what a lot of people are thinking. Is this going to be a situation where, you know, people who you know, don't get the vaccine will be discriminated against? Will they be well, disproportionately so. affected depending on the communities that they that they live in? And will employees be discriminated against let's, for let's it? Let's hope so. I mean, on the left, that's where exactly what we're saying. I mean, I'm all for what uh, Warner Media, United Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, uh, Microsoft, uh, a whole bunch of other companies are doing and saying that, yes, we will, in fact, discriminate against you if you don't get the vaccine. We might impose all kinds of conditions. We might just say that you can no longer be employed, that the vaccine is a condition of employment. And that, to me, it seems is perfectly within the rights of private businesses to say, we have certain conditions of employment. You have to do certain things. And if you don't like it, go find a job 
elsewhere. And to me, that's a very positive trickle down sort of thing. That's a slippery slope. I hope, you know, I would love to see Amazon and Walmart, the two biggest employers in the country, get on. And if they really haven't, they've gone more with carrots instead of sticks, offering various incentives. Amazon's doing like a lottery thing. And Walmart's actually paying employees $150 to get the vaccine, which is up from 75, which they had been doing. So I, I'm glad the Biden administration is meeting with these companies and encouraging this, not mandating it, but encouraging it. And I hope that more and more employers do that. And because for most people, the vaccine is widely available. Now, I would have an issue if an employer mandated a vaccine and it, it happened to be more difficult for some employees to get it. And they, they were, you know, had a reasonable case to say, well, I get it, but, you know, I, I can't. It's not available. But I, I think in, in almost a small number of cases, that's not true. And so I want to see more companies doing this. Absolutely. What, what about opt-outs? I, I see a, a huge potential problem there when it comes to opt-outs with people who, um, for example, I'll, get, I'll give you a really good example. So I have a friend uh, who's a nurse it's, uh, and he works in a hospital not far from my house. And he has a heart condition, a heart condition that, uh, you know, basically kind of eliminates the possibility of getting the vaccine. His doctors have advised him not to. His cardiologist has advised him not to. Um, he was a, his hospital uh, or his hospital group, I should say, mandated the vaccine and he was able to get an opt out. What about a situation like that? What about religious opt outs? I just I foresee a lot of problems well, here when it comes to opt out. I'll say I, I, absolutely. If there's a, if there's a legitimate medical reason for an opt out, I would certainly support that. But religious or ideological reasons? No, not not at all, because this is a public health issue. And so I say that overall public health trumps that that sort of reason. But if you know there's a legitimate medical reason, I 100% am okay with that. So you, you don't see a potential legal issue when it comes to religious exemptions from this vaccine? I, I certainly see that argument being made, absolutely. And, and I think that there's a balance to be considered with that, certainly. But I think uh, ultimately that the balance uh, needs to come down on the side of on the side of public health. And so, yeah, I, I, it's a legitimate question to raise a, a religious freedom question. But I, I think ultimately it's, you know, kind of along the lines of, well, what if my this is a more extreme example. My religion says that I can take intoxicants. Well, sure, go ahead and take intoxicants, but you can't be a bus driver and be, you know, intoxicated or something like that. So if people don't want to get the vaccine, then I think that it's reasonable to say that, well, if so, then you have to undergo a lot more things like and, and this is maybe a, this is maybe a, a way to, I suppose, split the difference in a sense, because I know certainly for, for government employees, in some instances, I believe how it works, I think, is that employees that federal employees who refuse to get the vaccine because there is that mandate, then they have to get like weekly testing and masking yeah. and there are travel restrictions. And that to me seems to be uh, at least some way to sort of deal with that. So I think there is some room to kind of work at this on, on the edges, but I think a lot of people who aren't getting the vaccine are just not getting it for just some sort of hazy sort of ideological personal freedom sort of thing. And, you know, I, I think we've just generally speaking as a country gone too far in that direction and have forgotten that we focus so much uh, on our 
on our rights and our freedoms as individuals, but we forget about our responsibilities as members of a community. And I think we have suffered in this, certainly, and in so many ways because of that. Yeah, I I disagree with you. I I do think that those fundamental freedoms and those personal freedoms are, are incredibly important, and I think they need to be a part of the conversation. And I think that a lot of people, not just not just people on the right here in this country, but a lot of people around the world are have concerns about, you know, like I like I keep saying the slippery slope, but also, you know, the idea of government overreach. Um, a lot of parents are concerned about overreach when it comes to children not being able to make decisions for your children. Um, you know, at least, you know, mandated a vaccine with the possibility of an opt out uh, for things like, you know, religious and ideological reasons for, you know, legitimate medical reasons and things like that. You know, I just, I, I think there are so many uh, questions that we still have to answer about COVID. There's so much we don't know. And I think there are a lot of questions that people are legitimately, legitimately asking about the efficacy of these vaccines. Um, you know, mRNA technology is very controversial. And I think a lot of people um, are, are concerned about, you know, the data that's coming out, the changes in the data. Like I said, we're going to talk about the the efficacy, the discrepancy in in the efficacy numbers of like the Pfizer vaccine. Um, you know, it, it's the 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 moving goalposts in terms of you know it's a prophylactic. No, it just lessens the symptoms. Well, maybe it you know prevents the virus, but only to this extent. To this extent, I just you know I've said again and again and again, I'm not anti-vaccine. I think you know most people on the right are sort of just put into this group by people on the left as, as being, we're all anti-vaxxers. We're not, um, you know, most people I know have received the vaccine regardless of their politics. I just view it as such a deeply personal decision. And I think, you know, if your employer, um, you know, mandates the vaccine, I think there has to be a way to opt out for a legitimate reason. I think it has to be there. And if not, like, like, you know, you agree that there will be like serious legal ramifications. I just don't see this going away See, anytime soon. I have legitimate concerns about it. I mean, I, again, I would say that for empl- private employers, that's a, that's a different story. Private employers, I, I, I think that's a serious concern about their freedom to run their businesses the way they want. It's a different, different story when you talk about, when you talk about the, uh, the public sector with the state mandating it, certainly. And uh, on the controversy of mRNA vaccines, I would say that they're actually I would I would counter that they're not actually very controversial. They're very controversial in certain small circles, particularly on the right. And that's that's not to say that they aren't controversial in those circles. But more generally, I I don't believe it's accurate to say that they are. And and finally, I guess I would say that when we talk about I mentioned the community responsibilities, I am not I don't want anyone to get the impression I'm saying that I don't think that personal freedom is an issue here because I absolutely do. And I agree that sometimes people on the Mm -hmm. progressive left downplay that. But, But what I'm saying is that in my view, that balance between responsibility to the community and personal freedom, oftentimes, especially on the right, tilts far too much in the area of personal freedom without sufficient concern for community responsibility. And I think you would probably agree with me that there was a there was a balance that needs to be struck there and that sometimes on the right the tendency is to go too much into personal freedom and on the left maybe the tendency is to go into too much to uh community responsibility. 
Oh, a hundred percent. In fact, it, when you, when you were, uh, you know, when you were just talking, I, I thought to myself and I bet he, you know, he basically counterbalances it and says that on the right, there are a lot of people who tend to look at the left and, and say that the balance is off going in the opposite direction. And I think that's exactly the case here. And I think that's kind of at the root of all this is it's at the root of the, you know, the, the politics of COVID is, you know, this argument about personal responsibility versus, you know, for the greater good, the public good, and, you know, how much of of what we need to do versus what we want to do, um, you know, how, how much of that comes into play. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like the never ending argument between progressives and conservatives. So, that, yeah, I mean, I guess we agree to disagree on that. <laughs> well, 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 and going back to the sort of the Santa's case and the politics of it, uh, the question I would have for you as somebody who has followed DeSantis more closely than I have over time, certainly, and is, you know, you're right there on the, on the ground and seeing the, policy implications yep. <laughs> of the decisions that his government, his, his executive branch is making. What and how how good of a job or bad of a job in your estimation would you say that DeSantis is doing? If you had to give him a grade on those A to F scales, I mean, what, what sort of grade would you would you give him? Um, on COVID or just in I, I, Yeah, on COVID. Sorry. On COVID, um, you know, if, gosh, if I was looking at the past year and a half, I'd give him a B. A B. I'd give him a B. And what about DeSantis since the Delta variant, uh, kind of the surge of the Delta variant? Um, I'd give him a B still. Okay. All right. So yeah, he's... I think I think I don't think that would change. I mean, maybe I'd have to think about it a little more. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard. It's hard to think about things over the past three or four months versus everything that's happened over the, the last year and a half. There were plenty of points last year where I found myself questioning his decisions. Um, you know, like you mentioned this this idea of uh of, you know, private enterprise and, you know, kind of, um, you know, policy affecting private businesses and things like that. I have some questions about that too. Um, but, you know, overall, I, I think he's done a good job. I, I, as a parent, my concerns are, you know, about school, about, about children, um, about, you know, the safety of, of vaccines, masks and other COVID policies regarding kids. So I think to, to that end, I appreciate that he's put power, you know, back in the hands of parents, although, you know, here in Broward County, I, I guess that doesn't really apply. So, <laughs> So I, I would give him a B, a fair B. And I, I will, I will give you the easiest uh, question for you to answer. You will, you won't have to be a great mind reader. What grade would I give him? No, oh, probably an F. There you go. It would be, a, it would definitely be. If you one of those big red Fs, I'd pull out the bold pen and I would circle it a bunch of times and say, "See me after class." That would be the grade I'd give Ron DeSantis. But uh, I, I know we need to move on. We have a lot of stuff. But before we do, I just saw the time. Yeah, yeah, it, it happens. Before we do, we're just going to take a quick break and then we will be right back. All right, Kristen. So why don't we move on from our lengthy discussion, but I think, you know, into a worthwhile discussion on COVID to talk a little bit about a, a non-COVID topic, that $3.5 trillion Senate budget agreement. Yeah, I mean, COVID is always appropriate to talk about, especially when it comes to policy. But this is also appropriate. This made a lot of news this week. Um, so the Senate passed a uh, $3.5 trillion budget proposal. Um, it was in a 50 to 49 party line vote in the Senate. And so I figured uh, we would talk about what's in it, um, some of the potential long-term budgetary effects, um, as well as objections from both Republican senators and 
from some moderate uh, Democratic senators about what is actually in the proposal. I mean, either way, get ready for plenty of debate now that this first hurdle is cleared. You know, this is not off the table. Um, and then, of course, kind of, you know, just to, to introduce the topic kind of related to that is the issue of consumer confidence. Since we're talking about finance um, this week, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index fell by 13.5 percent in August, which is the third largest single month decline behind April 2020, which was the onset of COVID lockdowns and then October 2008, which was prior to the Great Recession. So there's a lot of, of you know, financial news this week, this uh, $3.5 trillion budget proposal, um, you know, definitely some blowback from some Democratic senators. What do you think, Mike? Well, I would say as to uh, the the package itself, uh, not that it will pass in in this form. I, I don't think that's likely, but it will pass in some form. I really like what's in it. I mean, the main things I'm really happy about, uh, higher taxes on the wealthy, over $400,000. I, I like that, certainly a return to at least somewhat of the pre-Trump era on that. Uh, adding dental, hearing, and vision coverage to Medicare, I, I, I like that. Uh, I, I like the idea of Medicaid expansion to those 12 Republican states that haven't done so yet under the ACA, lowering prescription drug costs, universal pre-K, tuition-free community college, paid family and medical leave, hundreds of billions in climate change-related initiatives. And, you know, I look at all, and obviously $3.5 trillion, there's a lot in there, and it seems to me that the reaction from liberals and conservatives, you could actually say it's the same reaction uh, in the same sentence, because liberals, uh, yeah, people like me are saying, this will make us a lot more like Western Europe. And conservatives saying, this will make us a lot more like Western Europe. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do it. You know, Uh, I I also point out that three point five trillion dollars is a lot, but it's over a 10 year period. And if you take a look at that over a 10 year period, it amounts to maybe around one percent or so of U.S. GDP over that period or right around. So I don't think it's necessarily as big of a potential inflation driver on its own as some people on the right. And I think there's this tendency to look at the headline number and not to realize that, well, no, actually, this is over like so many of these things over the period of a decade. And I think that's important to to put that that in that context. But my guess would be is you'd be much more in the uh, in the camp of this will make us a lot more like Western Europe. Ugh, right. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, would this would this be the politics, guys, if I didn't. If I didn't uh, try to counterbalance your argument with another argument. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, I, you know, I, I thought that, uh, you know, well, first of all, let me say that this, this budget proposal is not surprising to me at all. Um, President Biden has um, kind of shown himself to be, at least in my opinion, and in the opinions of a lot of people on the right, um, a lot more progressive than he once was and a lot more progressive than he was once thought to be. I think uh, the Senate and, and the House, really, uh, the Democratic uh, senators and also uh, Democratic House leadership and also representatives have 
you know, overall been marching to the left slowly. Um, you know, certainly this is this is a continuation of, you know, what was going on during the Obama administration, certainly during the Trump administration. And then now, um, you know, it just so happens that I, I think a, a lot of what is in this proposal is going to be up for debate. Again, like you said, it's it's not going to pass like this. It never does. Budget proposals never do. Um, often they look quite different. You know, at the end of the road versus at the start of the road. Um, but obviously, I think there are a lot of progressive policies here that, um, you know, raise a lot of eyebrows on the right. I think there's a lot of infrastructure talk that has been uh, rightfully the source of a lot of ire of people on the right. Um, I think that there are. Um, you know, I, I think that some of the, especially some of the concerns of like Senate, uh, Senator Cinema and uh, Senator Manchin, some of the more uh, moderate, uh, Repu- or I'm sorry, Democrats, uh, I think some of their <laughs> concerns are uh, are valid, you know, especially when it comes to infrastructure. Um, and, you know, the, the idea that, you know, some of what's contained in this budget proposal is quite bloated, um, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't even know where to begin, but yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. The thought of looking more like Europe, um, is a pretty grim proposition for me and for a lot of people on the right. And I think for a lot of moderate Democrats as well. Yeah. That, that reminds me of a, of a quote <laughs> last week from Lindsey Graham, who said, uh, you're putting in oh, motion, boy. I think the demise of America as we know it. And, and I, you know, I practically had to go to an optometrist if my eyes rolled so far back in my head after reading that, but that's, you know, political rhetoric. So, uh, but as you pointed out that it's not, this is not going to happen in that format. I mean, Manchin and Cinema made it clear that they, they voted to allow for discussion, debate on this, but they are not going to be okay with voting for this in its final, you know, this has the final sort of thing. I that, that's, I think that's pretty, pretty mm-hmm. clear, but you know what, what, what's interesting to me is not the, not so much the Senate dynamics on their own, but the Senate combined with the house dynamics, because of course, progressives in the house are, you know, want all this and more. One of the big mm-hmm. uh, disappointments to progressives is that this did not include lowering the eligibility age of Medicare to 60, as was being talked about at least earlier on, something I certainly would be a, a big fan of, but it's neither here nor there. But, but, you know, the Nancy Pelosi in the House right now is working with a three vote margin. And that gives that gives a lot of power to, you know, to a small number of members. And so we see that for instance, House progressives are demanding that the House pass this package before that bipartisan infrastructure bill, in part so that moderate House Democrats won't, you know, pass the infrastructure bill, then bail on this. And then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, moderate House Democrats are demanding just the opposite for, again, similar, just reverse reasons. And I think it's going to be just politically kind of fascinating to see how Pelosi and how the House works this works out these dynamics because i i'm i'm fairly certain of this i'm fairly certain we're going to get the infrastructure bill that was passed a little while ago essentially in the in the form that it was approved by the senate i'm also fairly certain we're going to get some sort of big uh budget bill i think two trillion or more but i don't pretend i don't pretend to be able to predict the order in which they're going to pass or where the budget bill will you know, end up landing, aside from the fact that I feel like it's going to be north of $2 trillion. But I just don't see the progressives walking away from 
a couple of trillion dollars in, in, in spending that they can get for programs they feel are vital, you know, uh, and I don't see moderates walking away from from this deal either. So it's going to happen. To me, it's just a question of what the numbers are going to look like. Well, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, again, like, I, you know, I don't want to say that I can predict what what's going to be in that in, you know, in this at the end of the road versus now when it's a proposal and, you know, it's being hotly debated. And, you know, again, like you said, I think if 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 hardcore progressives had their way, this it, this would be a starting point for more. Like you said, you know, you have, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming out, you know, Bernie Sanders coming out, a lot of people in both the House and the Senate coming, a lot of progressives in both the House and the Senate coming out and basically saying, like, this is good, but it doesn't go far enough. And, you know, I think the big question is in, in the in the past, um, that that kind of ultra progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you know, kind of this is going to be a question of their influence in the past, especially in the, you know, during the Trump administration, there were a few points where um, they made their case known and they had quite a bit of influence over, um, you know, what was going on in the Senate, you know, over Senator Schumer, over, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi, um, you know, they, they, they had quite a bit of influence over these, I guess, by comparison, more moderate senators and, and representatives on the left, which, you know, again, like it seems to be this kind of slow creep towards um, progressivism. But, you know, I think it's going to be a question of whether or not, um, you know, that the the, uh, the squad and their, uh, you know, I guess I, I guess their auxiliary <laughs> members are going to be as influential as they have been in the past. Um, you know, it just depends. Sometimes um, they've been influential in the, in the past. They've not been influential when it comes to um, budgetary matters. They've not historically been as influential as they have on you know smaller matters. I think the infra- I agree with you. I think the infrastructure, um, you know, the infrastructure legislation will pass. But you know, obviously, I, I don't. You know, I th- I do think that it's going to be a pretty big proposal by the time we're done with it. I think I do think it's going to be north of of two trillion dollars. Whether or not I agree with it is a whole other thing. But, you know, I think it'll pass, um, you know, but I, I think it's going to look very different at the end of this road. And I'm I'm curious to see whether some of the more moderate Democrats fall in line with kind of like that squad progressive faction in the House and, and in the Senate. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree that the center of gravity in uh, congressional Democrats has moved to the left. And as you pointed out earlier, that that Joe Biden, who throughout his career has done a really good job of kind of triangulating where the center of his party is, has moved to the left as well. And and to me, it's you know, I, I think a lot of people talk about the House Progressive Caucus and the squad and so forth. And there, there are a lot of there are a lot of people in that group. Right. But I also would point out that we see a similar thing on the right, because I, if I the last time I did the numbers, which is, I don't know, a week or so ago, the uh, Republican Study Committee, which is the kind of conservative counterpart mm-hmm. to the House Progressive Caucus, actually has a larger percentage of congressional Republicans than the House Progressive Caucus does of congressional Democrats. I think I said that correctly, which to me is just kind of a point of the, 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 the larger issue of polarization in Congress and the incentives that drive that sort of thing, I think. 
Yeah, 100%. I totally agree. And, and, you know, again, like I, you know, as just a, you know, somebody who's just really into, you know, I love policy, it's kind of where my heart is, but I'm interested in politics, you know, wh- whether or not I find it repulsive, sometimes I just feel so repelled by the politics of it all. And sometimes I'm so interested. Um, one of the things I'm interested in is kind of like this, um, you know, what's going on the left with this kind of progressivist push, and then this sort of like, well, it's kind of like two, two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back, you know, depending on the day. So, I mean, ever, ever since, you know, 2016, really, I've, I've been very interested in 2018, those midterm elections, I've been very interested to see, you know, where, where the Democratic Party ends up when all is said and done. Of course, it's, you know, it's always ongoing, but there just, there seems to be this, this march to the left. And I'm curious to see whether, you know, they're at this point in time, you know, as, as progressive as, as the Democratic Party has become, if the more, more progressive uh, people in that party are, are going to have their say, um, you know, or, or whether it's, you know, it's kind of going to go back to like, you know, the, the roots of people like Nancy Pelosi, for example, who, you know, tends to be, she has become more progressive, but she tends to be a little more uh, middle of the road, obviously, than some of her more progressive counterparts. So I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. <laughs> my, my, my sense of the matter is, uh, and this kind of shades into our next story, which we're going to get to uh, shortly, is that once the, the Democrats lose both the House and the Senate in the midterms, and I think lose the House by a by a, a good margin, then there's going to be a, a lot more counter pressure on the most progressive wings, uh, the most progressive wing yeah. of the Democratic Party. Uh, and that, that that's what I think is almost inevitable, certainly in the House. I you know, I wouldn't I, I'd say probably 80 percent, 90 percent chance that, you know, the, the Republicans are going to regain the majority there. And I think it's going to happen in the Senate as well. And and I think in part it's going to be because of uh, at least to a certain extent to the uh, because people have an issue with, if not progressivism in general, at least with how progressivism has been, I would say, successfully portrayed by the right as a really bad and evil sort of. Thing. But but before we move on to that, Lester, I wanted to ask you, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about this, and I, Jay and I just missed it last week because of the timing, but on that earlier infrastructure vote, were you surprised that so many Senate Republicans, 19, voted mm-hmm. for it, despite Donald Trump just coming out and just saying, you know, this is not only bad, but I, you know, I might mm-hmm. have to give support to people who are uh, you know, opposing you in primaries and that kind of thing. I mean, 19 Republicans, that's that's bipartisan by anyone's measure of the term. And uh, I guess this kind of ties into what we were talking about, me, why I thought about it is because some people would be hopefully saying, well, see, that shows that in the end, Donald Trump is going to be a waning influence in the Republican Party when it really comes down to brass tacks. I was just wondering what what, what you thought about that. Well, I, th- I think there are two factors here. I, you know, it's funny because um, when we were outlining the notes for the show, I was surprised that that didn't come up. Um, but it, but it's something that I, I think there are two things worth considering when it comes to those 19 Republicans. I think the first thing you have to consider um, are who are those 19 Republicans, right? Um, a lot of these Republicans, I just pulled up the list when you were talking now because I remembered a few, but I, I wanted to see all 19 of them. Um, a lot of them have not been closely aligned uh, with Donald Trump and, and and with the people, you know, his, 
I guess, his allies. Um, you know, you've got like, you know, a lot of very middle of the road Republicans, a lot of, you know, non-Trump supporting Republicans. I'm looking at uh, Susan Collins of Maine. There is, you know, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who, you know, <laughs> he, he he seems to go wherever the wind is blowing at the moment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very annoyed with Lindsey Graham and have been for a long time. Um, you know, Senate majority, uh, I'm sorry, minority leader Mitch McConnell. What's interesting about Mitch McConnell is I I think that um, he is also getting the sense, like you said, that which and this is my second point, that um, Trump's influence is starting to wane. I think he remains very much um, a figurehead, um, you know, in the Republican Party. I think he is for a lot of kind of groups of Republicans and ideological base. But I think what you're seeing is the Republican Party, um, you know, certain groups in the Republican Party, um, particularly those who tend to swing more libertarian, kind of shifting their focus away from Donald Trump and, and his policies and, you know, looking towards other ideological leaders. So I think, you know, the Republican Party was very polarized before. It, it was either you were a Trump supporter or you weren't. And, you know, there was very little room for people in the middle who, you know, maybe supported Donald Trump, but had criticisms like like I did, or, you know, vice versa, people who didn't support Donald Trump, but maybe, you know, supported some of his policies. I know a lot of people who fell into that position, too. So, you know, you know, looking at this list, Murkowski, Mitt Romney, you know, and another one, Tom Tillis. I mean, there, there are people on this list that I'm not surprised are on this list. So, I mean, just to give it a full picture, I think you have to look at the, these 19 on this list. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I do think that this shows that he's Maybe, you know, that that his that his star is fading a little bit, maybe that he's, you know, maybe he's being crowded out by other people that Republicans are looking to as ideological leaders. So, you know, it's becoming more crowded, I guess, on the right. You know, I, I noticed I pulled up the same list that you did. And yeah. uh, one thing I noticed that in looking at the 30 Republican no votes, there there are some, I guess, somewhat surprising ones. And I think it's largely has to do with why I'm particularly talking about uh, uh, Marco Rubio, Ben Sass, oh, yeah. And uh, uh, well, those, those two stick out because immediately I think, yes, these are people who see themselves as the next president of the United States. And so this would be a good sure. vote because certainly, you know, Ben Sass is kind of uh, about, the, you know, he's a pretty or at least likes to position himself as kind of a moderate-ish Republican, and Rubio, I think, to an extent as well. And so I think to a, you know, a number of senators, maybe that's political considerations for what they hope their next job is on that sort of thing. So. Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, it's it's funny because I, um, you know, I think that any time, and I, and I, and I'm not, I don't think this necessarily happens, you know, with Republicans. It happens with, you know, once a Democratic president leads off, leaves office or is, is voted out or whatever. I think that any time that happens, there's kind of like a like an identity crisis going on in, in you know, in, in, in that party, you know, whichever party is, you know, the one to not emerge victorious sure. in the presidential election. And, you know, I've seen it happen in the Democratic Party. We saw, you know, I think a huge identity crisis in the, the Democratic Party between like 2016 and maybe, you know, 2018. Arguably, it's still going on to some extent with this march to the progressive left. But, you know, I definitely see this going on in the right. I think, uh, you know, there are like I like I've always said, uh, there are different types of Republicans. It's not just one, you know, shade of, of either black or white. It's it's very gray. And there are lots of different, you know, people who, you know, kind of have their hands and, and feet in different boxes on the Republican side. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, likewise, I think you're going to see a lot of people like 
for example, Senator Marco Rubio, um, who's from here in, in South Florida, I think you're going to see him, you know, kind of count his, uh, you know, his political cards first. And he's like you said, he's he's thinking about his presidential aspirations. I think he's had them for a long time, um, you know, and, and you see this playing out, I think, with some Republican governors, too. It's kind of like, do I align myself with President Trump or is that, like I said, a fading star? And should I, you know, you know, I guess, like trudge out on my own or align myself with someone else? So, yeah, I, I kind of feel like we're, you know, like the, we're like we've been shaken up right now. And, and it's going to be interesting to see, I guess, over the next year with midterm elections coming up next year, you know, like where everything kind of falls and settles on the right. So, and, you know, yeah. kind of coming full circle, it, it seems to me, with Republican governors, you mentioned that uh, the mm-hmm. most the most clear example is somebody aligning himself with Trump or trying to be sort of a Trump with some of the roughest edges uh, uh, filed down would, would be, in fact, your governor, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's, he's putting a lot of chips uh, on that, and, and I think it might actually, if, if Donald Trump decides not to run himself, that I think he, uh, he, has, a, he has a pretty strong chance at uh, picking up that nomination. But it's a long ways off, that's for sure. Okay, so you know, we 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 had a lot we wanted to get to, and we're going to have to move that into the our next bonus show, which again we are releasing at the same time for supporters on Patreon, uh, and that includes talking about the census data, which is a part of the reason why I think that uh, Republicans are not quite a lock, but have a really strong chance of retaking the house and uh, that IPCC climate report, which got a lot of attention. And I think rightly so. And the Taliban's just, just totally just tearing through Afghanistan, surprising some folks, at least in the intelligence community. And maybe more than, more than that, we'll see how much time we have. But um, before we do go and get into that, Kristen, I know you mentioned that you had some recommendations. I always like your recommendations. They're they're interesting, particularly interesting. I mean, not the Jays and Trays and Kens are. I don't know. There's something about yours that I always really seem to like. So, what do you got for us this week? Oh man, so um, so I have I actually have two. I'll I'll go through them really quickly. So the first one is um, something that I think everybody would would benefit by because we're you know we're home more. We're ordering you know different things. We're ordering groceries, basically ordering everything and having it delivered to our home, no matter where you live in the country. Um, and you know, for in my case, I'm a parent, so I'm kind of managing shipments for like four people in my household as opposed to just me. Although I think this would be good for everybody. Um, so I downloaded this something called the shop app. I don't, have you heard of it, Mike? I have not, no. Shop app. Oh my gosh. So it's a, it's a free app. Um, and you basically link up your different accounts, uh, like your Amazon account or, you know, similar, uh, you know, shopping, different, you know, different shopping companies, you link those accounts and it basically tells you in real time, everything that's shipping to your address, when it's coming, where it is kind of keeps track of everything all at once. It's sort of a random thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's like one of the most useful things. One of the, it's definitely my most used app. Um, you know, but like, it's, it's one of the most useful things that I've gotten, uh, over probably the last couple of months. So, um, yeah, it's very cool if you're somebody who likes to keep track of that stuff. And the other thing I wanted to recommend is a show because I love recommending um, good shows. And um, so I highly, highly recommend a show. Um, it was uh, a, a British production that was um, it's very, very timely now, but it, it was uh, adapted. I, 
um, or I guess purchased by AMC. Um, and it's available now on Amazon Prime and it's called the Salisbury Poisonings. And it's about, I don't know if you remember, Mike, um, I think it was back in 2018, there was a former Russian spy in the UK in Salisbury who was poisoned. And there was this okay. like kind of all this mute. Do you remember that? that sound, yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it it was a story that kind of like came and went elsewhere in the world, but in the UK it was really big news. But it there was this like pub, there was this whole public health crisis, and it it was all very very real, and it kind of it preempted everything that happened with COVID about a year year and a half later. And I thought it was so interesting. This um, so it's a it's just a four part series. Like you could easily get through it in a weekend or something like that. Um, and it is dramatized, but the acting is like you know I've talked about Chernobyl, the acting in Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. It's like Chernobyl quality acting, um, and it's and it's really good. But it kind of goes through the timeline of events with these poisonings and um, kind of like the public health response. And actually, it made me feel a lot of empathy for people on the public health front. Um, you know, their, their, their story isn't heard enough. So um, kind of like what they struggle with and their concerns. So I loved it. I thought it was great and very appealing. And, and it's a happy ending for most of the people affected by the, the poisonings. But yeah, interesting because it's a true story. And I highly recommend the series Salisbury Poisonings. All right. Well, I guess I should I should throw in a, a couple of recommendations yeah. of myself quickly and I will uh one is uh, I will do a show as well and it's it's a show that I'm sure a lot of people have already seen uh Bosch uh it's kind of an old fashioned I like the kind of old school type of series because it's the, the the main character Harry Bosch he's not a particularly tortured soul he's not an anti-hero it, it kind of to me it kind of combines the best of old and new style TV kind of combines that it's season-long story arcs of modern crime shows with more of a, I guess you could say, an old-school sensibility. And I really kind of like that. Maybe that's just a sign of my age. I don't know. But I, I really – I just finished uh, uh, binging the, the final season. And uh, from start to finish, it was one of the most enjoyable shows that uh, that I've seen. I think actually it was the longest-running Amazon show. And then something a little, I guess uh, – different, a little kind of higher end, you could say. I'm just finishing up a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience by the uh, philosopher psychologist William James, written around the turn of the 20th century. William James is an amazing writer, an incredibly insightful guy. His his brother, Henry, was a you know, esteemed novelist. The whole family was just amazing. And it's, uh, it's a sort of a psychological, philosophic look at at religion uh, through William James's unique pragmatist lens. And I've just, it's opened my eyes and made me think about things. And I'm a, I've become a huge fan of William James. I've read a lot of him over this summer and I definitely highly recommend that. Plus it's, you know, it's, it's old enough where it is free in public domain, though I ended up screening for the nice library of America edition with the hardcover and the built in little fabric bookmark and all that kind of stuff, because I just, that's how I like to read books. But anyway, those are my recommendations for this week. Yeah. And as always, uh, if you would like to get that bonus show that uh, we'll just, Kirsten, I'll be doing in just a minute. uh, You can either be a supporter of the show, patreon.com slash politics guys. If you can't afford to just send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com. And I will get you set up to get that second episode. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, left a rating or review, and especially if you could share episodes on social media, that's the best sort of advertising we can get. We would really, really appreciate it. If you just want to get in touch with us for any reason whatsoever, 
Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to that in our show notes. A special thanks to our most excellent executive producers of the Politics Guys, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.